0: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Be reported by Crown Airport, Chicago, Illinois.
1: the sky. Uh, it's where I want to go, go. when I die. When I die and, and, and you're living the to rest, I want to go on the piss with Georgie Best. Oh, it's a Manchester thing. Yes. Oh, a Manchester <laughs> United uh, thing.
2: Excuse me, Man you. Oh, course. yes, of
1: course. I mean, well, I mean, do you like English Premier Football?
2: Uh, you know I do. You <laughs> <laughs> so know I love it.
1: I've been singing these chants all week, it's so much fun because we're a Manchester United household. Household, although, uh, th- are
2: we a Man U? Did we just fucking alienate half our British audience? Well, the
1: thing is, is that Ian Curtis was a Man City ah, fan. Ah, okay. And, and all the it has, they're actually doing better now. <laughs>
2: So are we going on hooky side here? I don't know. Where where should we go? I don't know. Let's go Man U. Well, Come okay. On.
1: All right. Man Your brother's
2: a Man U fan, so let's fucking go Man U. All right.
1: But do you want to know a Man City chance? Let's do it. Let's okay. see a Man City chance. All right. Do you know Blue Moon?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Blue Moon.
1: It's Blue Moon. Okay. No, that's it. That it's uh, just a song. It's- <laughs>
2: I'm assuming their colors are blue (laughs) Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody I'm Marcus Parks
1: I'm Carolina Hidalgo
2: And, oh my god, oh my god So excited (laughs) to start this new series Oh man, it's, uh, let's say Let's just say it's a surprising series Yeah This series is absolutely gonna surprise you Now, if one were to pinpoint the emotion And the state of being that helped to create punk The top contender for the emotion Would probably be anger while the state of being would most likely be boredom. And up to this point in our series on the genre of punk, those things have largely been the prime movers. As one person put it in a documentary about the band we're covering today, punk was, in the time of the Sex Pistols, all about fuck you.
1: Yeah, fuck you, fuck (laughs) you, fuck you. Are you listening in the car with your toddler? Well, fuck him too.
2: (laughs) This band we're covering today, however, was among the first to instead say... I'm fucked. In other words, it was post-punk. It's what came after, the next logical step, the gaze inward after the outward scream and sneer. It was still kids making music with no training. It was still no future, but it was also an evolution. This band we're covering today proved that complex emotional ideas not only had a place in the landscape of punk, but were in fact essential to the progression of the genre, because anger only takes you so far if you neglect what's happening at the core of your being. By tapping into lead singer Ian Curtis's inner core, this band recorded some of the most bleakly beautiful, universal representations of depression ever put to tape. Honest and grasping in their delivery, without being overly emotional like the Smiths. What? <laughs> or self-pitying like the Cure.
1: Okay, I'm going to disagree with that. Yep. At least with the Cure, okay, because the Cure has songs for every mood. Okay, <laughs> the, the, there's the dour moods. Yes, there's a the sad mood. Okay, but there's a happy dour mood. Yeah, there's happy sad moods. <laughs> there's something for everybody.
2: <laughs> there are really okay. I mean, hey, I love both of those bands. We both love both of those bands. But hey, let's call a spade a spade here. <laughs> As far as today's band goes though, the lyrics and the music conveyed the stark loneliness of mental illness, the claustrophobia of it all. It was music that was both deeply personal yet universal. To me, it helps prove that the greatest art is the kind that's able to prove that people are the same everywhere, whether it's covering the joys we all share or the darkest depths of human emotion. But while the story we're going to tell over the course of the next few episodes is tragic at times, the vast majority of it isn't. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually barely morose and is more of a tale of perseverance that has more in common with the band's Suicide than anyone else. In addition to that, this story is also surprisingly absurd and funny because this band was, after all, still made up of four shithead kids from Manchester that played pranks and called each other into the bathroom to take a look at the gigantic <laughs> turds they found along the way. And that included Ian Curtis.
1: I've always shown such incredible restraint. <laughs> and so have you.
2: I have. I have. We've not got... these guys. <laughs> I mean, we at the very least, like, come out of the bathroom and say, you should have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are like, you gotta, yeah, fuck it, yeah. It's like you gotta fucking come look at this shit. But this seeming inc-
1: <laughs> welcome to our series.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but this seeming incongruity between who they were and the kind of music they made is part of the allure. Nothing about this band should work, and yet it does. And their particular alchemy of necessity, stubbornness, and candor inspired countless musicians across countless genres for years to come. As Chuck Klosterman put it in an essay about Radiohead's Kid A, a genius can be a genius by trying to be a genius. A visionary can only have a vision by accident. And out of all the post-punk bands of their era, there was no band more visionary than Joy Division. Baseline shouldn't work.
1: I know. I was just thinking about that. I was just thinking
2: about that. Like that should not work. And yet that song would not be the same without it. That song wouldn't work without it. That ding, 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 boom, boom. Like nothing should work. There's all kinds of weird fucking notes in there. There's all kinds of weird shit going on with Peter Hook's baseline. It shouldn't work, but it fucking does. Now, most bands, but especially punk bands, are ultimately products of their environment. However... One thing we've discovered over the course of this season is that this holds true for England far more than it does for the United States. In today's case, Joy Division was first and foremost a Manchester band.
3: Oh, yes yes.
2: and if there's some fucking Mancunians yelling about Salford right now we'll get to it hi (laughs) but you know Georgia Division was a Manchester band just like the Damned and the Slits were London bands the Dead Kennedys were a San Francisco band and the Ramones were a New York band but the thing about all those groups is that they're from cities known the world over everyone knows London everyone knows New York by contrast Joy Division's hometown was a squalid husk of its former glory, although there was never really any glory for the working class of Manchester. Now Manchester had been the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, and therefore the birthplace of the modern world, but it had also been where the problems behind industrialization began, namely the exploitation of workers and the grimy cities industrialization produces. In fact, the poisonous smoke in the air and the industrial works that produced them were such a fact of life in Manchester that it entered into English folk tradition, just like the American Dust Bowl entered into ours. The environment in Manchester was inextricably wound up with the lives of the people who lived there, and this is evidenced by the fact that the more romantic-minded of Mancunians still refer to Manchester and neighboring Salford as the dirty old town.
1: But lovingly.
2: <laughs> very, very lovingly.
4: I'm with
0: my love by the gasworks wall. Dream the dream by the old canal. I kiss my girl by the factory wall. Dirty old town, dirty old town. Wilds are drifting across the moon. Cats are prowling on their beams Springs a girl from the streets at night.
3: Dirty old town, dirty old
2: town. Uh, Who wants a fucking drink? Jesus.
1: Actually, I do.
2: (laughs) Of course, World War II hadn't helped matters much either, because Manchester got their fair share of Nazi bombs. But Manchester was not a world capital. There was no Buckingham Palace or Piccadilly Circus, no fucking Taurus or goddamn Corgis. (laughs) There was no incentive. Instead, by the 60s and 70s, Manchester was a brutal, half-bombed, post-industrial landscape, comparable to what we here in America can now see in the decaying towns of Detroit, Flint, or Gary, Indiana. We call it the Rust Belt, for fuck's sake. But right next to Manchester was a place that was even worse. That city was Salford, the dirty old town that the song was actually written about. And by the time the boys in Joy Division were coming of age, it was considered one of the great slums of Europe.
1: But you see, the word great is in there. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay. Yeah,
2: Yeah, the word great is also in the great dictator.
1: Right. Congratulations, guys. You're great. You're great.
2: In fact, the industrial output in Salford during that time did damage on a Salfordian's lungs that was the equivalent of smoking 70 cigarettes a day. And you'd be a fool to think that any Salfordian saw a bit of profit from all that fucking misery. Furthermore, Manchester and Salford had gone through a transition when it came to living spaces. The traditional row houses of the past had been torn down and replaced with huge concrete apartment blocks that resembled fortresses, cutting off any sense of community while giving everyday life an almost prison like vibe. And it was here, in the industrial fumes and concrete blocks of Salford, that Bernard Sumner, Joy Division's guitarist, was born. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're right. <laughs> You're right. Bernard Bernard Sumner. Yes, he grew up in Lower Broughton.
2: Lower Broughton Hell Bro-tun. yeah Bro-tun. Hell yeah Broton, Fuck been yeah been
3: working on that
1: But yes He did grow up in Lower Broughton of <laughs> Salford Right A typical working class area That was ins- Actually the inspiration For Coronation Street No shit did You know that long running TV show Yeah the-, <laughs> the one I've seen Five seconds of <laughs> Yesterday yeah, The
2: one that That shows up in uh, Jokes in every BBC Program we watch Yeah but we've never Actually seen that one
1: I've seen a few seconds I think it has something To do with a store <laughs> Anyway, Bernard, Bernard, (laughs) he lived there. He lived there with his grandparents and and his mother who had uh, cerebral palsy and and she was confined to a wheelchair her whole life. So, yeah, he did not live uh, wealthy by any means. No, Uh, none of them did. No, he spent most of his childhood just breathing the fumes at the Wheat Hill Chemical Works factory just down the street from his house. And that was it was sometimes so bad he couldn't even leave his house. Yeah. And even though Bernard, like he did say he had a happy childhood, you know, running around with friends and stuff, he found like the, the adults there were very stifling. Like one time he picked up a poetry book from from the school library, and as he was reading it, his teacher saw it and said, like, just put that away. There's no point in reading anything like that. You're, you're gonna end up working in the factory just like your father.
2: Yeah. The Ber- you fuck you reading that for? Going <laughs> down to the factory get it you fucking job back. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know the fucking. I know every fucking British person is gonna hate when I do a British accent. This, but on the other hand, been watching a lot of BBC shows lately, and any time a fucking British person tries to do a, an American accent, it's like, "Hi, I work for the CIA." <laughs> Does anybody have a hamburger I can buy or possibly have? Like,
3: yeah. Thank
1: you for inviting me to the party. Can I bring my guns or will you be supplying for us?
2: Yeah, it's we both. We're it gonna goes, try. it we're, goes both ways.
1: Yeah, we're so Bernard, he never met his dad, actually. Oof. Yeah, but but it really didn't bother him. Actually, he says even to this day, he, he really he's fine. And when he was a kid, his mom remarried this guy named Jimmy who moved Bernard and his mother to Greengate. You know, those new tower apartments you're talking about that looks like a fortress? Yeah. Yes. He used to think it was great, though, <laughs> because they had a bathroom inside. Yeah. And from his bedroom window, he could see a tree and a patch of grass, and he was loving it.
2: Well, that's what That ba- was his life. That's what Bernard's quoted as saying over and over again, that he didn't see a tree until he was about nine years old. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, and he did talk about, you know, he said he had the chemical plant on one side and a street gang on the other. And the uh, block where he, you know, grew up before all this. But he did say, like, yeah, we had a bathroom. We had all these amenities, but you lost community. Nobody talked to each other anymore. Now, as far as musical influences went, Bernard was lucky to have the North Salford Youth Club. Having been born poor, he had to get music wherever he could. And it was here at the youth club's disco that he heard Ska and Soul Downstairs and Led Zeppelin, Santana, and the Rolling Stones above. Now, although Bernard Sumner lists T-Rex as a big influence, specifically Ride a White Swan, which we played before, great fucking song, Yeah. he said the first time he was truly blown away by a piece of music was when he first heard Ennio Morricone's soundtrack to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yes! That entire soundtrack is beyond fantastic.
1: Yeah, it is really good. I've been listening to a a, a lot of Ennio Morricone and a lot of Hans Zimmer Mm -hmm. again. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Just put them in your earbuds and then go and run an errand. (laughs) It becomes epic.
2: (laughs) Now It was at Salford Grammar School that Bernard Sumner met another member of what would become Joy Division, who would also later join Bernard in, spoiler alert, New Order. This man would prove to be one of the most accidentally innovative bass players of the punk era. and His name was Peter Hook, known yeah. to most people as Hookie.
1: Hookie, right? It yeah. feels weird. I, I keep calling him Peter because yeah, we're not friends. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's like we're not going to call Bernard Sumner Barney because he's Cause not my friend. He's not my friend. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, the invitation is out there. <laughs>
2: To both. I mean, to both. The (laughs) invitation is absolutely out there.
1: So, Peter, yes, of course, born in Salford, again, and the same age as Bernard. And uh, they met when they were 11 years old in school. Actually, Peter's first memory of Bernard was uh, when he was standing outside the gym at school. And he said, all right. And Bernard goes, all right. And that was it, <laughs> because that's how easy it is to make friends when you're 11 years old. And they hung out together at school. You know, they, they hung out in the back of the classroom where the cool kids would hang out talking about girls and music and writing in their scooters. Definitely needed a scooter back then to go anywhere. And uh, he, he kind of Peter described it as like that TV show, The In-Betweeners, which I've actually seen. It's great.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's
1: just like that. Just a bunch of kids just trying to find a way to combat boredom yeah and mean teachers
2: it's so funny the scooter thing like the whole like being like scooter boys like, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah they're part like, of a, a, a weird scooter gang
2: <laughs> like i'm sure they wouldn't like describe it as like hey we're a bunch of scooter boys that's us just hanging out <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's a, but these scooters like they they were a part of their fucking identity and to me the, the funny thing about uh specifically like bernard you know in his scooter gigantic Santana fan. Yeah. And in fact, named his scooter Abraxas after the Santana album, which if you don't know which album that was, is the one that had this song on it. Yeah, Just man.
1: two 16-year-old Mancunians <laughs> is going on their scooters listening to really cool Latin music.
2: Man, if I'm riding a scooter around fucking Manchester, yeah, I'm listening to Oya Como Vai. I don't know why it fucking works, but it does. <laughs> now, Peter was a regular listener to Top of the Pops, which, as we all know, it was the goal of any British musician that was looking to make it. There, he discovered Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Mark Bowen, and David Bowie, of course. But once Peter got older, he started hanging around the North Salford Youth Club with Bernard. There, he began paying more attention to ska, and before long, Peter Hook was a skinhead. However, right, <laughs> this was long, long before skinheads came to be associated with neo-Nazis. Instead, all being a skinhead meant was that if you saw a British teenage boy with buzzed hair, it was a good bet that he was in a reggae, an old-school ska like the Upsetters or the Pioneers. Ha took our summer of reggae suggestion seriously
1: i hope so too because we barely did (laughs) (laughs) but now i want to do it again
2: we're gonna try it again we're gonna try the winter of reggae
1: yes yes let's all skank slowly together (laughs) yes
2: skank safely everyone
1: (laughs) so skinheads right can i give you guys a a short overview of the skinheads uh, movement or whatever you can call it i think we have to it's a very
2: important part of the british scene
1: absolutely okay so you, everyone knows like the skinhead look is very very uniform obviously like skinheads would wear like Harrington jackets suspenders pair of Doc Martens combat boots you know the Tight jeans, Levi's, you know, and of course, shaved or very, very short hair. Mm -hmm. That's the look. So this started around the mid 1960s. Like skinheads, they they were white kids from working class areas who mingled with the new Caribbean immigrants of that time. Mm -hmm. So because what happened is that after World War II, a ton of Caribbean people moved to Britain and they called it the Windrush Generation. Remember Don Letts? Yeah. We talked about in the Slit series. His parents came through because of that from oh, Jamaica. All right. Yeah. And then he was born in London and then, you know, it was super cool.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he was born cool.
1: <laughs> anyway. So because of that, the young working class people started partying with the Jamaicans and West Indians and, and all the other Caribbean people and dressing like them uh, because and, and this has been proven Time and time again, uh, black people's culture is cool as shit. Yeah. And I mean, they're getting exposed to all this like, can I borrow that hat? (laughs) (laughs) It kind of starts that way. Of course. Yes. But then the skinhead subculture, it went over to the dark side right around the time when Richard Allen's book Skinhead came out in 1970. And this in which uh, the hero in the book is a guy named Joe who is super racist. That is my book report on that. I am not reading that book. (laughs) anyway okay, you're
2: not gonna fucking do a double d- dose of that in the turner diaries
1: i'm good i'm good <laughs> anyway then people from the national front you know neo-nazi a mm-hmm. uh, big group that we talked about i think that with the dead kennedy series so these people from the national front they started handing out leaflets at football games i'm sorry soccer games oh you <laughs> americans
3: at soccer games
1: and inviting all these young guys to like fun parties and day trips to these fun party time places that's
2: how it always
3: goes but in
1: reality yes it's like the foot clan (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles remember they hand them out cigarettes and let them like play arcades and then later they have to join a cult
2: yeah or today the Proud Boys like it it all works it all works the same
1: Proud Boys they're not even as good as that (laughs) Anyway, <laughs>
2: but anyway, yeah, but but that that is how a lot of these uh, racist groups begin It's like it's uh, giving them a sense of community. It's giving them uh, parties. It's giving them this, like, man, it, you know, what's fun. Racism. Right. If, you wanna, if you really want to have fun, you need to really get into racism.
1: That's what they would do. They would hold meetings and they would talk about the plight of the white man and mm. how if you're not happy with your status and do something about it, like like joining extremist groups like the National Front, like essentially recruiting an army. Yeah. Right. And the right wing politicians were all about it at that time.
2: So what is it about the skinhead cult? Like, that's the one thing that I never understood because, you know, it went from something that was essentially aping black culture to uh, the most racist group in all of England. Like, what was that jump?
1: Well, it's because the skinhead thing kind of like, it kind of went, it dipped a little bit and it came right back up around the time, I don't know, 1976 when punk broke in England Mm -hmm. and which we all know punk music being rebellious music for the disenfranchised, which unfortunately for punk, the National Front guys identified with it really well.
2: Well, they're very angry people.
1: Yes. Especially remember street punk, like bands like Sham 69, uh, the oi punk music Mm -hmm. um, where like a a lot of these guys would raid concerts in start riots Uh, we talked about that with dead kennedy's sham 69 was in the forefront of that and obviously it was much to their chagrin they did not want to be associated with these guys they were actually preaching the absolute opposite of that and tried to and they tried to do like participate in a concert and uh was it rock against racism but by then it was just way too toxic and they actually bowed out by like 1979 1980 so like Neo Nazis ruined Sham 69 <laughs> and everything else along their <laughs> along their way. So now the problem with the skinhead image though is that between the ones who just enjoy the music and the fashion and the camaraderie with with their friends, you know, the original skinhead idea, and then there's the racist neo Nazi na- National Front guys is that from the outside they look the same. Yeah. And can be easily confused especially by the media. Yes. So it gets tainted that way. I mean, of course, that's until later. They found different ways to identify themselves, and like, like, sharp came around, uh, skinheads against racial prejudice that started in New York City that eventually spread to other parts of the U.S. and and then Europe by the mid 1980s, and then two tone music m- became a thing. But you know, like, and then we're just going on, yeah, and on yeah, and on
2: the on. red shoelaces and yeah. all that shit.
1: But so, in this case, to Peter and Bernard, being skinheads really meant that they like dancing the reggae music, yeah. and hanging out with diverse, like-minded people,
2: yeah, and that's it. That's it. That's all it was. But really, what solidified Peter Hook's passion for music was a holiday to a seaside resort town in Wales called Rill. He went with a few friends, but since they didn't have much money, they spent most of their time wandering the streets or listening to Radio Luxembourg in the unheated camper they'd rented. There, in that camper, was where Peter heard the first piece of music that blew his mind. Now, I don't get it myself. (laughs) (laughs) But Peter Hook was enraptured, By a song from Cop Me Rebel called Sebastian. Feeling (laughs) it does have feeling, I'll give it that. You know how long that song is seven minutes long. What?
3: (laughs) All right,
2: it's a seven minute long song, and it does have passion, it does have feeling, I'll give it that. And to me, that's what's interesting about the British palette as far as music goes because it seems to me, at least in the 60s and 70s, because that song came out in 1973. The British had much more of a tolerance for, let's say, imperfect voices. Right. You know, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a cultural thing. They sing in pubs more than we do. <laughs> like, they sing, and everyone's fine, and everyone's loving it, and everyone loves And I guess they, they respect passion in music maybe more than we do. Um, but just as, as an example of what we mean, I mean, The Damned, remember The Damned? We did a whole series on them. Their first true hit in England was History of the World Part One. And Dave Vanian hits a sour note in the fucking chorus every time he sings it. <laughs> like, it's part of the song it's now. A part of the, it is, an, it is a, a, an obviously sour note, and yet that was The Damned's first hit. It did well for them. And as we'll see later, once we get more into Joy Division, lead singer ian curtis also had a very distinct yet very imperfect voice as well
1: and speaking of imperfect voices <laughs> Let's talk about Peter buying Cockney Rebel's Human Menagerie <laughs> It was in the, the Cockney Rebel's first LP He picked it up and he's like this is my gateway to music And and since then He's just started reading NME Remember New Musical Express mm-hmm. magazine yeah. And Sounds magazine And and he and Bernard they just kept going to concerts At every chance they could uh, they, they saw Led Zeppelin, they saw Cockney Rebel They saw Deep Purple Although they had to, leave early because Bernard had a toothache <laughs> uh, but yeah no they, they enjoyed all of it
3: yeah
2: is it Bernard or Bernard
1: I'm doing both
2: because I'm de- <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm doing both confidently.
2: All right. All right. I'm, I'm going to stick with Bernard. Okay. All right. Now, Peter felt the first rumblings of the upcoming punk scene when an issue of NME featuring the Sex Pistols was shoved into his hands by his friend Terry Mason, who could easily be described as Joy Division's version of Carl Pilkington. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're gonna get we're gonna talk about Terry Mason. Oh god, he's such a lovable doof, but we're gonna be getting into Terry Mason quite a bit. We fell in love with Terry Mason a little bit.
0: (laughs) The legends are true! Overwhelming power sauce of destiny. Yes!
2: Now, what Peter Hook appreciated about the Sex Pistols was that even though he had no idea what their music sounded like, they at the very least appeared to be actual humans. And where Peter was used to seeing pictures of an etheric and serene Robert Plant holding a white dove in front of a crowd of thousands, almost godlike, the enemy spread on the Sex Pistols had pictures from a gig at a pub in London where people were beating the piss out of each other. <laughs> he could relate to that. So, when the Sex Pistols came to play Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester on June 4th, 1976, Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner were in attendance at what some consider to be one of the most important gigs in rock history. Although thousands of people have claimed to have been at this show to the point where I was there is now a joke, it was attended by, at most, 50 people. But out of those 50, a good number would go on to change the face of rock music forever. Morrissey was there. Marky e. Smith from The Fall was there. Tony Wilson, who would later co-found Factory Records and help create the rave scene, was there. The man who would change music production forever, Martin Hannett, was there. And of course, there were the guys who would book the fucking gig. Their names were Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto, and they'd already started Manchester's premier punk band, the Buzzcocks.
1: Yes, they started. Oh, sorry. We're
4: playing a song. We're, we're doing a song first. Alright, but cue the song. Well, you tried it just for once. Find it alright for kicks. But now you find out that it's a habit that sticks on yawn all charismatic. Yon all charmatics. Sneaking in the back door with daddy might seem so your mother wants to know what all the stains on the jeans and yawn all cash. You still keep a beat and you meet up pulp and you're an orgasm addict. You're an orgasm addict. you kick a kicker You're no cho o pizza. Live on up fucking yourself to death. Orgasm addict. You're an orgasm addict.
2: Buzzcocks coming out of the gate hot. First single.
1: So Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto, they met in 1975 in college when Pete answered an ad about playing Stooges and Velvet Underground covers in a band.
2: The way they all did it, the way all fucking early punk bands did it. So
1: you like this? I like that? (laughs) Cool that's exactly what happened they they both shared the same taste in music and they started playing together and soon after that they became the Buzzcocks. yeah right and then the next year right this 1976 they're reading enemy magazine about like this crazy new band called the sex pistols where their shows always ended chaos and pete and howard were intrigued we're like we got to see this band and they couldn't find a gig listing in the magazine whatsoever so they're like all right, let's just call the magazine <laughs> which they did so they called the magazine it's like hey do you know where the sex pistols are playing and, and enemy was like no actually we we don't uh, but but you know what we do know uh, Malcolm McLaren he is their manager and he has a clothing store called sex on King's Road in London so Pete and Howard just hang up the phone and they look at each other they're like shall we take the car <laughs> yes yes we shall go and they drove all the way to london it's like a four-hour drive it's from manchester long, it's
2: a long drive yeah made that drive it's a very long drive so
1: they finally get there to the sex shop in, in, in london and and the guy at the store is like no sorry we're closed you got here really late <laughs> but pete and howard were like okay but we're looking for malcolm mclaren and he's like yeah actually that's me what what the hell do you want <laughs> And they're like, well, we heard about this band, the Sex Pistols, and we want to go see them. And Malcolm said, okay, sure. So they got to see them that night and the next night. And Howard and Pete loved it. It was it was great. They loved it. So after the show, Malcolm mentioned to them, to the guys, they're like, yeah, I, I want Sex Pistols to you know go on tour, play outside of London, not these like tiny little dingy clubs or whatever. And Howard and Pete said, well. We're from Manchester. We came all the way here to see them. And we love them. And we know everyone will love them. And you know what? We know some people since, since we're in a band, sort of, sort of, sort of in a band. <laughs> and we can set something up maybe at our college. So Malcolm said like, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Get back to me on that. So as soon as Howard and Pete get home And after making a few calls And going to their college They realize that no one in Manchester Wanted to put on a Sex Pistols show Yeah Nobody Especially their college
2: Well I mean at that point No one knew who the Sex Pistols were Not really At least outside of the music press That's right The the Sex Pistols had not hit their big Like they had not gone national yet Like at this point it's like We're not putting a band called The Sex Pistols on campus I think
1: it was the title (laughs) It was the the title. title Yeah Yeah So you know what Pete and Howard did? They just looked at each other and they said, well, let's just put on the show ourselves. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, Take a chance. Fucking yeah. book the show. Yes. DIY.
1: Yes. So the lesser free trade hall was available for 32 pounds. And so it was that was perfect. They they're going to use that. They they didn't want to embarrass themselves in front of Malcolm who who paid the money for the hall. So Pete and Howard promoted like crazy. They put up like hundreds of posters all around town. They called up all their friends all about it. And they figured, okay, this hall can fit up to 300 people this could be a really big show and we can make a profit and and open for the coolest new band ever and then pete said later that about 42 or 43 people showed up yeah but he's not sure if that includes him and howard (laughs) or the sex pistols themselves
2: you know and out of those 42 43 people two out of the four members of what would become joy division were also there along with Terry Mason, yes. who wanted to be a part of the scene so bad he could fucking taste it. <laughs> yes. God, he wanted to be he in.
1: stuck <laughs> his tongue to that pole. <laughs> yes, he did. So, yes, Terry, Peter, and Bernard, with their girlfriends, they went to go see the Sex Pistols with a buzzcocks supposedly opening for them you know it was even on the ticket stuff that pete and howard made themselves <laughs> but after a disastrous debut gig earlier in april and uh losing their bassist and drummer in the process the the buzzcocks had to bow out and just work the box office that night so well they were taking tickets <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i mean we've we've told the story like time and again like especially like you know like dag kennedy's just like they got the drummer a week before the gig yeah. and were able to go on sometimes that doesn't work out
1: sometimes <laughs> you're just like tickets tickets <laughs> and so they're doing that while Malcolm is outside in like a in a black leather outfit just just trying to corral people in like like he normally would he was always like the circus ringleader he was always like step right up step right <laughs> up these are londoners here you know they're <laughs> world famous next day ne- i'm sure soon <laughs> Uh, so anyway so howard and pete are just sitting there in the in the box office taking a couple tickets really and howard's like oh man we lost half our band and we can't play tonight but you know but there there was this dude who said he plays bass he left me a message this morning so that's promising Mm. and pete's like oh okay cool i guess (laughs) and so malcolm overhears this and then he looks over and he sees a guy waiting outside just standing there in the corner so malcolm goes up to him and says, "Hey." Are you are you here for the show? And the guy says like Nah, I, I'm actually I'm waiting for someone. And Malcolm says, Oh, you're the bassist, right? And the guy's like, Uh, yeah. And Malcolm's like, Oh, great. Okay, go on inside. They're inside. Hey, Howard, Pete, come on inside. Here's your new bass player. <laughs> Turns out that bassist guy was Steve Diggle, who had answered a different ad and was meeting a different band at the bar next door. And they mistook each other for a good 20 minutes until they realized that he hadn't answered their ad and he was just a guy on the street who happened to be a bassist. But that didn't matter because Steve Diggle did become the bassist for the Buzzcocks, then later guitarist. And that is the story at the beginning of the Buzzcocks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh wait, but wait—the the Sex Pistols show is about to start. Of course, right? Yes, okay, yes, so, yes. So, this
2: is all before the buzz. The <laughs> Sex Pistols even go on.
1: I know. <laughs> so the Sex Pistols show is about to start. So uh, they all go in and they and they sit down because it's a seated venue, okay? Which people described as looking more like a school assembly yeah. than a punk show, but it's what they had. Yeah. And so up first was the newly booked opening act, Solstice, who uh, luckily brought. Aided their friends to the show, which really helped a lot. Uh, And they were very deep purple uh, Led Zeppelin type band who covered a mountain song that night, and and they did all right. You know, people clapped, people clapped.
2: Yeah, they covered "Nantucket Sleigh Ride." I think they did a 23 minute version of it.
1: Yes. (laughs) It took. I mean, luckily we were all sitting. Yeah. I mean, shit, I was not there. I was not there. Yeah,
2: they they were all
1: sitting. (laughs) And then the Sex Pistols came on, and they just blew everyone away, especially Peter, Bernard, and Terry. They were struck so hard because the Sex Pistols, these four young guys just on stage, looks just like them. And they're playing fast and aggressive, and they make it look cool and easy to Mm -hmm. With the lead singer, Johnny Rotten, he's just wearing this torn open sweater and just sneering into the crowd like he wanted to fight you, but he also didn't give a fuck about you. (laughs) And the audience, they could barely hear what they were playing because it was so distorted, the sound was just so bad, but it didn't matter because it sounded cool. The whole package worked. That's the thing. The music is fine. It's really good, but it's the attitude that makes the show.
2: That's the inspiration.
1: Exactly. And Peter and Bernard, as teenagers, they ate it up. Because to them, it meant that their life, or really like any teenager's life, that their day-to-day existence is all about how teachers and parents keep putting you down and keep saying, no, 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 you're wrong, you're a kid, you're nothing. But the Sex Pistols were saying, no, you're right. You're right about everything. Yeah. And that struck a chord with everyone who saw them play that night. That gig changed the world.
2: It absolutely did. And so, having been fucking blown away by the pistols, Peter, Bernard, and Terry decided that very night to start a punk band. They only had two rules, act like the Sex Pistols and look like the Sex Pistols, which of course meant a lead singer, a drummer, one guitar, and one bass. You better not have two fucking guitarists, (laughs) because punk bands don't have two guitarists. (laughs) At least that's what the kids thought.
1: Yes, well, that was all there was left to do, right? Start a band. Yeah. And Bernard had already had a guitar like a, and a little amp he, he got for Christmas one year that he tried to play a couple of times, but he lost patience and just let it sit in the room gathering dust. So he said, like, I'll be the guitarist. You know, I, I already have a guitar. So Peter figured, okay, I'll be the bassist. And Terry said... Okay, I guess I'll be the singer, <laughs> but I really should be the bassist because I'm taller, and bass guitars go for taller men. If you ask me, but fine, whatever.
2: That's how he's the Carl Bilkington, because uh, yeah, but like the tallest guy plays bass because that's because it's a big, you know, it's a big. Instruments, so the tallest guy plays it. <laughs> it's like,
1: no, guess it that doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just a very loud conversation at the bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> this
3: is what was happening at this time, right?
1: So it was all set. And the next day, Peter borrowed 40 pounds from his mom and took a bus into town to an electronic shop. So he walked in and he goes, yes, I'd like one bass guitar, please. Can I have one of those on the wall over there? He really knew nothing about instruments whatsoever. So the shopkeeper was like, uh, like uh, uh, this one? And Peter's like, is that a bass guitar? <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah. He's like, okay, I want that one. How much is a bass guitar? <laughs> Can you imagine like how like the history of music unfolds with one guy being like no the one over there
2: <laughs> Is that what I'm supposed to get is it, like, is it really no, a-,
1: a little more to the left <laughs> So Peter got his first bass guitar a Gibson EBO uh, copy no make on it for 35 pounds and as soon as he stepped out of the store he was like what the hell am I going to do with it? <laughs> so he just ran into a bookstore and picked up a, a how-to-play bass guitar book. The, the Palmer Hughes book of rock and roll, you know, playing a day, yeah. that kind of stuff. So he took him home all in a black garbage bag because there was no way he could afford a case anymore. I mean, he was all out of money already.
2: <laughs> but every single fucking punk artist, I don't know if there's one punk artist who brought their first guitar home in a fucking actual guitar case.
1: That's true. <laughs> Viv Albertine got hers in a, in a garbage bag too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Johnny Ramone also got his in a garbage bag. <laughs>
3: That's good
2: luck. That's good luck. So once Peter and Bernard had their instruments and learned at the very least enough to play together, they began rehearsals in Bernard's grandmother's front room. But since neither one of them had a working amp, they had to improvise. As it went time and again with Joy Division, Peter and Bernard figured something out and soldered a couple of jack plugs so they could hook their instruments into the back of Grand Stereogram Record Player. But as it also went with Joy Division time and again, it didn't fucking work. (laughs) There's a lot of trial and error with this band. It sounded fucking atrocious, especially when they played together. And Bernard's grand threw them out after they absolutely ruined her fucking stereo. (laughs) Now, one of the fascinating things about the Manchester punk scene and just the British punk scene in general was how goddamn fast everything came together once everybody caught on. For example, the Sex Pistols returned to Manchester for a second show only about a month and a half after the first, but they returned to an entirely different vibe. By the time of their return, everyone had the punk clothes and everyone had the punk attitude, or at least the Mancunian version of it. Now, of course, everyone who'd been to the first show had a leg up on everyone else, and when they saw someone at the second who'd been at the first, they'd nod. Then, when they saw each other again after that, they'd talk. And simple as that, the Manchester scene was born. Now, when it comes to the gig itself, this second gig, most of the people in the audience were Mancunians doing their own thing, wearing what clothes they bought at the thrift store to fulfill their idea of punk. But the ever crafty Malcolm McLaren, seeing that Manchester had an appetite for punk, juiced the numbers by bringing in a busload of punks from London for the show. This, however, introduced some regional differences. Because, from what I can tell from my own personal experiences and from what I've read and heard, nobody outside of a Texan or a New Yorker is more concerned with regional origins than a young Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) God damn. (laughs) They will get it down to the fucking street.
1: Yes. So that is true. I mean, and that's what happened outside of the, the Second Sex Pistols show is that there was a mix of Mancunians and Londoners, or, or some of them called Cockneys, mm-hmm. right? That's what they call them, like my fair lady, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so there was this one particularly aggressive hoodlum type guy at the show, and he came over to Bernard and Peter and, and Terry, and he said, Hey, are you, are you guys fucking Cockneys or what? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, just
2: why? Yeah,
1: and and the guys were like, no, 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 no we're 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 from Salford, and the aggressive dude's like, well, we're from Manchester too. We're from Whittenshaw and we're in a band. And so Peter, Bernard, and Terry were like, yeah, well, we're we're in a band too. So the hoodlum guy goes, oh yeah, what's your band called? And they had to say, well, we we don't have a name. We don't have a name yet. No, we we're working. We're working on that. We don't
4: got one. <laughs>
1: And the guy said, like, right, sure, Cockneys. You better watch your back, Cockneys, because he was always so tough. You know, we're in a real band, and we're playing tonight, and we're opening for the Sex Pistols. And it turns out that was true, actually, (laughs) because that aggressive guy was Mick Rozzy, the guitarist for Slaughter and the Dogs, one of the earliest punk bands in Manchester that were about to open for the Sex Pistols.
2: Let's hear some Slaughter. Gee, I wonder what album that came out in 1976 Slaughter and the Dogs had just listened to.
1: <laughs> okay. The thing about Slaughter and the Dogs is that although, yeah, they're pretty good, it's fun, loud music. That's yeah, fine. And directly influenced by David Bowie and MC5, mm-hmm. uh, they, they seem to lack a personal charm to them. <laughs> You know, and that's not just me. They're called Slaughter and the Dogs. Oh, that's 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 not just me. Yeah, Paul Morley, he was a music writer. He he described them as like a sex pistols type band that jumped on the punk and glam rock bandwagon without really studying it well, mm-hmm. or like studying the wrong way or something along, <laughs> the, along those lines. And the same thing with their tough attitude. It felt like they were putting on an attitude because that's what you had to do. Yeah, something. And like 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 when they they hassled the guys when they hassled. Peter, Bernard, and Terry right outside the Sex Pistols gig showing off that they were the supporting act that night even though they all grew up within 10 miles of each other. <laughs> Sorry, 16 kilometers. <laughs> and Slaughter and the Dogs, they did say that they were approached to open for the Sex Pistols on that second show but according to Pete Shelley, it was really Slaughter and the Dogs that went up to Malcolm and said, hey, we're a huge band and we have a big following. The show will be packed because of us so book us. Which Malcolm did and put him on the bill You know, between the bus cocks, Finally the buscocks! Hey. Nerd! (laughs) Slaughter the dogs and, of course, a headliner, Sex Pistols. But the thing is, Slaughter the Dogs... They even had their own promotional posters made up. Which Such a is, dick move. Which is I mean, that's fine. But, this,
2: but what Slaughter of the Dogs did is a dick move.
1: Okay, so what they did is that they put their name above the sex pistols, <laughs> even though they were opening, and they didn't even bother to include the Buzzcocks in it at all. It's like the font is much bigger.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dick move. The slaughter of the dogs, their fucking career is typified by dick moves.
1: They were they were known to be very arrogant and, and they didn't quite pull it off. But to be fair, slaughtering the dogs as well as the drones and, and soon enough The Buzzcocks were the biggest bands of the early punk scene in Manchester back then so like you know they they did put on a good show at the very least
2: yeah they put on a great show but you know, they were full of pose as yes you'd say. That, that is true now this second show was important for the Sex Pistols because it was the first time they played Anarchy in the UK live which is arguably the defining Sex Pistols song but as far as Joy Division went this was the first Sex Pistols show attended by Joy Division's future lead singer The ever-flawed Ian Curtis.
1: Ah, Ian Curtis.
2: Ah, Ian Curtis. Ian
1: Kevin Curtis.
2: (laughs) His middle name's Kevin.
1: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Doesn't get any more British than that. That's right. Uh, So Ian, yes, he's also from Manchester, of course. He grew up in a happy household. His dad was a detective for the Transport Commission Police and his mother, a homemaker, and his younger sister, Carol. And even though his family wasn't very musically inclined... Ian liked playing like with his like cheap ukulele he had and he had a harmonica he picked up and he even formed his first band when he was 12 years old. Hmm. Yeah. The treacle teapot.
2: Oh, that's adorable.
1: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's just a bunch of kids messing around making noise. But but what is treacle? treacle
2: (laughs) what is treacle i don't know (laughs) someone will tell us yeah fucking follow our fucking instagram and comment what treacle is (laughs)
1: please please do now i feel dumb that i don't know
2: no dog's pot yes
1: (laughs) okay so yes it was a bunch of kids messing around uh, the treacle teapot
2: (laughs) i don't know what it means either
1: But you know what? Ian loved making noise with his friends because it it was a creative outlet. You see, he loved the stage. He would always sign up for school plays, talent shows, anything to get more creative in an industrial wasteland like Manchester that was all gray and smog. You know, it, it could be quite boring for a 12 year old. Yeah, and with boredom, also came experimenting with drugs. Yeah, he and his friends would sniff dry cleaning fluid and steal (laughs) prescription pills from neighbors. One time, he was so bored in school, he took one too many pills and ended up in the hospital, getting his stomach pumped. Uh, But but he didn't turn to drugs all the time. That was you know that was stupid childhood stuff. But no,
2: Ian Curtis was not a, a drug addict at any point. No, none of Joy Division was.
1: He was actually really into history and he soaked up every history book he could find like starting from roman emperors to medieval knights to later famous but dead musicians (laughs) desperately looking for role models to help mold what he wanted to do what he what he wanted to become
2: yeah he was a smart kid now seeing how ian curtis was just the tiniest bit more well off than peter and bernard his music tastes were allowed to be a little more specialized and a little more obscure. Because let's face it, obscure taste requires risk, and risk requires cash. Or at least it did back then.
1: Well, it also helped that he got a job at a record store, Rare Records, what a great name to give it. <laughs> Rare Records. <laughs> <laughs> so Records. And, and so he worked there for like a year. So that I, I think that helped expose him to a lot of music. Because he yeah. was like that fun guy who was like, you want to talk about music then?
2: Oh, that's cool. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, in this case, Ian Curtis was a big fan of the MC5, Roxy Music, and the Velvet Underground. And therefore, he was a little bit ahead in the taste department. And as far as singers went, one of his biggest influences was, to nobody's surprise, Jim Morrison of The Doors, once again showing up in the history of punk. Like a lot of kids in Ian Curtis's generation, the guy who truly blew his mind was David Bowie, particularly Bowie's last track On the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That song was rock and roll suicide, which one can look into as much as they like considering Ian's eventual fate.
4: Time takes a cigarette Puts it in your mouth Pull on your finger, then another finger, then cigarette. The water wall is calling, it lingers, then you forget. Oh, 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 you're a rock and roll suicide. You're too old to lose it, too young to choose it. And the clock waits so patiently on your song You walk past the cafe But you don't eat when you've lived too long Oh no, no, no You're a rock and roll suicide She breaks the snarling As you stumble across the road But the day breaks instead, so you hurry home Don't let the sun blast your shadow Don't let the milk float, rob your mind They're so natural, religiously unkind Oh no, love, you're not alone
2: But the person who shared Ian's love of Bowie was a girl that we here in America would call his high school sweetheart. Her and Ian's turbulent relationship would be the source of a number of Joy Division songs, including their most popular track. But back in 1972, she was still just Deborah Woodruff.
1: Yes, Debbie. She was from Macclesfield, about 40 minutes outside of central Manchester. And when Debbie was a teenager, she started going out with this guy named Tony Nuttle. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you say it?
2: Yeah, yeah. I would say Tony. You probably not like, Tony Nuttle. Nuttall. Uh, is that Newtall? Newtall T- Tony Newtall I don't know. His name's Tony, like every other fucking guy in England.
1: So, Tony. <laughs> so, Debbie's going out with Tony. And Tony introduced her to one of his oldest friends. Ian Curtis. And she said that when she first met Ian, he was all dressed up in glam, wearing eyeshadow and a pink fake fur jacket that turned out to be Ian's sister's jacket. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course. And so he was definitely glam rock at this point. Mm -hmm. So the three of them, Debbie, Tony, and Ian, they would hang out at Ian's house and listen to records like Lou Reed and David Bowie, of course. She also noticed at his house, Ian had this like large black binder that held lined paper. So it was kind of like a like a trapper keeper, I guess you could say. <laughs> and in it had a, a like cardboard like filing cards that were labeled like novel, poem, or songs. And which was obvious that Ian had been quietly working on a project for quite some time already and he wasn't even ashamed of it he's like yeah those are my poems mm-hmm. those are my songs and everyone knew he was constantly writing which actually turned into a nightly thing a thing he would just do every night after work uh, he was just so determined to get his words out there out there in some form eventually
2: a born artist yes like, exactly it, yeah he wasn't it wasn't like a lot of the other kids were like they were waiting for punk to come along and show him how to do it like Ian Curtis wanted to be an artist from a young age and he fucking worked at it from yeah. a young age
1: he could have been anything really Yeah. So, but, okay. So they hung out, but then Tony dumped Debbie for no real reason other than they were just young teenagers so so which worked out because Tony didn't mind when Ian said, Hey, can I ask out Debbie? And Tony was like, Yeah, go ahead. Just just be nice to her. Yeah. <laughs> so Ian and Debbie's first date
2: Which he did not necessarily take that direction. I know. Unfortunately. Right?
1: So Ian and Debbie's first date was a David Bowie concert during the Ziggy Stardust nineteen seventy two tour. Oh. And from then on they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Ian was sixteen and Debbie was fifteen. And they were definitely very much in love from then on. But Ian started to show his dark side to Debbie. Like you said, he was very overprotective and he would throw a fit if he wasn't the center of her attention. He hated her friends, pretty much isolated them from her, told her to cover up and not dress in any revealing way, not wear makeup. He was very much in control of her life, even telling her, you don't need to go to college. We'll get married and I'll make enough money for the both of us. Yeah. So... They did. They got married August 23rd, 1975 in a big church wedding when Ian was 19 and Debbie was 18, which was pretty fast. They were very young. Everyone thought so. (laughs) Their family, their friends, even themselves. Uh, But they just all got caught up in it. Like Ian even confided to his favorite aunt. The day before the wedding, that he didn't want to go through with the ceremony, but figured it's probably too late since it's all set up. It's a done deal already.
2: Yeah, it was a power play. I mean, I mean, Ian Curtis was an emotionally abusive human being. Yes, I mean that we can't get around that. Yeah, we really <laughs> like, can't. Like that—that is—that uh, is an absolute fact. Um, but you know, art and artist.
0: The legends are true. But overwhelming power, source of destiny. Yes.
1: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with
0: Treadwell by Discount Tire.
2: So after Ian and Debbie were married, Ian went to work in civil service like a lot of people in England did at the time. Mostly because there wasn't much of a choice if one wanted a steady job that paid the bills. But even though Curtis was working a square day, he still had a burning urge to follow in the footsteps of Morrison and Bowie. So he took out ads in the local music press expressing his desire to be a singer, signing off on each ad with the name Rusty. (laughs) Meanwhile, inspired by the second Pistols gig, Bernard and Peter wanted to get more serious. So they sat down with Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks and asked him a very simple question. How do you be a band?
1: How start? <laughs> how
2: how start band play gig? <laughs> well, I mean, Pete was he was pretty helpful with his advice, but you know, the biggest piece he had was that if you wanted to be in a band, you should probably choose a name. Ah, <laughs> and Pete
1: yeah, we should have done that.
2: <laughs> and Pete just happened to have the perfect name for them. <laughs> and although it seems like Pete was probably, you know, in British parlance, taking the piss in his suggestion, Bernard and Peter still took the suggested name of Stiff Kittens. Okay. (laughs) Possibly the worst fucking band name in the history of punk.
1: The funny thing is Terry was like, I liked it. (laughs) I would have gone with that. (laughs) Peter Hook said that when Pete came up with it, when he said, how about the Stiff Kittens, they all said, no, that's terrible. (laughs) And Pete said, all right then. And then he put it on the posters anyways. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you see, Pete Shelley, he said he came up with it when, when his band, Remember the Buzzcocks. they were playing at Ranch Bar, which is a small basement venue with a bar that, that served many underage kids. So it was a quite a popular place. Mm-hmm. And, and it was also one of the earliest punk bars in the area. It was run by a drag queen named Fufu Lamar, who was the most flamboyant and lovable character that scene. Aww. I want to read Fufu Lamar's book.
2: The, she's got one?
1: Yes. Hell yeah. Yes. And it, and it was because of Fufu that the Buscocks and other bands had another place to play. So that was great. And anyway, the Buscocks were bringing their gear down these steep stairs that that lead to Ranch Bar. And as they were moving down with their equipment, one of them accidentally stepped on a newborn kitten.
2: What was the kitten doing out there?
1: The, the resident cat decided to have her kittens on those steps. <laughs> All right? Okay. When, when a cat needs to go, yeah, I guess. She, you know?
2: Yeah, when it's time to flop out, they'll flop out.
1: <laughs> what? <laughs>
2: Flop out, but kittens flop out.
1: Okay. (laughs) It must be a Texan. (laughs) So, yes, one of them stepped on a a newborn kitten and they're like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, And they all looked at it and they're like, I think it's dead. It's completely stiff. But luckily, that kitten did survive in the end. It just looked dead at first.
2: Ah, yes. Stiff kitten. Yes. Well, that's one origin story. I read another possible origin for the name of stiff kittens. And that one said that a woman living above the buzzcocks had a cat that delivered a stillborn litter and upon discovering it she yelled this room's full of stiff kittens and <laughs> <laughs> actually the buzzcocks thought that was the funniest fucking thing they ever heard oh, God. and thought like we gotta we gotta give that band name to someone we have to give the band name stiff kittens to somebody <laughs> but- that's
1: terrible my story is better
2: <laughs> I think my story's better <laughs> <laughs> I know your story is technically better because the kitten lived, but,
1: but I do like The, the old a- angry British lady, you know, the whole like Margaret, <laughs> Margaret!
2: <laughs> but no matter the origin, Peter and Bernard still chose it. And thus the stiff kittens were born like the slits, though. Stiff kittens got a mention in the press before they even played a show. Mm. at the third gig the sex pistols played in manchester pete silverton of sounds magazine covered the show and happened to interview the fledgling kittens in the article he wrote the sentiments that the pistols were great were echoed by most every kid i spoke to they were certainly all in the process of forming bands stiff kittens Hookie, terry Rowie, and bernard who has the final word being the most grotesque offering. (laughs) (laughs) And really, that wasn't that hyperbolic of a statement. After those first two Sex Pistols shows, just about everybody who'd seen them were making moves to start bands, or at the very least, were talking a lot about starting bands. But although the Pistols had done it first in England... The bands in Manchester, in particular, were taking the Rage of the Pistols and combining it with ideas that were much more complex than just a simple fuck you. Within a year of that first gig, Mark E. Smith, who'd been present at all three shows, debuted as the lead singer of The Fall. After the rest of the group rejected his first suggestion for the group's name, he wanted to call it Rectum.
1: <laughs> <You> would, uh, <laughs> sorry um, I swallowed some spit there. Um, you want you want us to call you, you want,
2: rectum. You, you want a rectum. poster
1: of that. You to want say a banner. Rectum.
2: I want everything to say rectum. And, I want the band to be called Rectum. And
1: the whole band is playing Everyone's underneath.
2: playing in Rectum.
1: rectum.
2: <laughs> we are Rectum.
1: Well, I'm so glad whoever said but well, what about The Fall? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Fall's a fucking fantastic band, man. But once The Fall were The Fall They wrote songs about, among other things, the decaying state of Manchester, particularly in the song Industrial Estate. Any of our listeners could maybe give me an entry point to the fall, please email us at nodoggs in at gmail.com. Please do that'd be
1: great, actually.
2: Because yeah, the fall have they just have so many fucking albums. There's so many albums. Uh and I just I've never been able to find the entry point. Where do I get into the fall? So if you can help, no dogs at gmail.com. And going back to Manchester bands, the morose boy in the back of that first Sex Pistols gig would quite a few years later graduate from the obsessive letter writer covered in our cramp series to become the lead singer of Manchester's biggest band outside of New Order The Smiths Yeah, I grew to appreciate the Smiths. I think you genetically appreciate the Smiths.
1: Yes, it is actually in our Latino DNA. <laughs> yes, that is true. That and uh, Cilantro. <laughs>
2: Which I hate.
1: <laughs>
2: but at that third Pistols gig, the kids were still trying to find their footing in Manchester, and Ian Curtis was one of them. Looking to stand out in the crowd, Curtis took orange fluorescent paint and wrote the word Hate. On the back of his jacket. It
1: was all caps or... All caps. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I I need to picture it. And it worked.
2: Because Bernard and Peter made sure to say hi to the dude they'd been seeing at punk shows around town. Meanwhile, stiff kittens were still looking for a lead singer. And nobody was working out quite the way they wanted.
1: Yeah, well, because after a couple rehearsals of Terry singing, which... Proved to be an awful idea. <laughs> they knew they had to find someone else, anyone else but Terry. They said. <laughs> so they tried out their buddy Roy, you know, from the from the sounds quote that mm-hmm. you talked about. But he didn't last. Then they tried to get their school friend Martin. But when they called, his mom said Martin's out plane spotting. <laughs> He's plane spotting. Plane spotting. Airplane spotting. He's going to go look at airplanes.
2: Yeah, like train spotting, but at plane spot. It's a British thing. Okay. They go out and they look at things that move.
1: That's cool. (laughs) I think train spawning is cool. Yeah. They go out
2: and look at things that move that have a bunch of people inside. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but they fucking love it.
1: Okay. (laughs) So they left a message with Martin because he was busy and he never called them back. All right. Too bad, Martin. So they figured, okay, no school friends. Let's place an ad. So they did. They placed an ad in the window of the Virgin Records store and they got a bunch of calls from all kinds of crazy nutty people. (laughs) One guy who called sounded promising, so... Bernard and Terry, they went to his house. So the guy answered the door and it turned out he was just a very, very long-haired hippie, like hair down past his waist and like with flared pants and a shirt that looked like a Cushion cover? <laughs> no, actually, it was a cushion cover. A cushion cover that with the like holes cut out for the arms and head, and he just put it on.
2: Bad fit. He's not paying attention to the scene.
1: And he's <laughs> and the and the hippie is like, "Oh, come on in, you groovy kids. Have a seat." <laughs> yes, I mean the floor. I don't have furniture. I don't need furniture. If you have furniture in your house, then that means you got furniture in the brain.
3: Fuck.
1: And Bernard and Terry were like yeah okay all right <laughs> fine we dig and so they sat down and the hippie guy he took out his poetry book and he started singing his words to them oh. and Bernard and Terry really didn't know what to say <laughs> <laughs> then the hippie guy pulled out a, a balalaika which is a Russian string instrument it's like it looks like a big triangle guitar that looks really folksy it sounds very Russian mm-hmm. and he started playing it, just strumming it while Bernard and Terry are awkwardly sitting just a few feet away oh. while the hippie stared at into their eyes as he sang his poetic words. <laughs> hated when people do that to me. Don't there. do that to me.
2: <laughs> I'm sitting there and staring at him like there's a fucking waiter explaining the specials to them. Like, yeah. Just yeah,
3: eyes blazing yeah. over.
1: And at some point, somehow, Bernard managed to stop the audition and say that's all nice and everything but we actually just came here to tell you we already got a singer
3: <laughs> yes <laughs> did
0: we? they already did we? got one
1: yes 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 we did <laughs> are you sure yes yes so thanks anyways and they just ran out of that guy's house laughing hysterically
2: <laughs> now Ian was singing in another band at this time with another dude named Ian but what inspired Ian Curtis more than seeing Bowie and more than listening to Morrison was seeing Iggy pop right around the time Iggy released The Idiot. Fight,
5: baby, baby, like your lips. Fight, baby.
2: Me, like you can hear the seeds of joy division in that song yeah like, you absolutely can yeah. and you can also hear the fucking seeds of industrial music in that song like it's it's uh it's i don't know it's the idiot man
3: like, <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> it's iggy Pop hanging around in berlin we're like i guess i'll make some music now
2: <laughs> and even besides iggy ian was also inspired after going to the mont de marsan punk festival in france which we covered extensively on our series about the band ian saw there he saw the dam. Yeah. Which let's listen to the fucking dam one more time. Yes, just one yes, more yes. time because we really want to drive home how insanely inspirational and influential the dam really were. <laughs> And to give a little plug to one of our favorites, The Damned, they are playing a series of, I mean, you're going to cut, it's a, it's a reunion gig with the original fucking lineup.
1: Remember, remember, Red Skate? He's like never gonna happen. <laughs> remember
2: that? I remember that. I remember that. Nope, he was lying. <laughs> uh, they are, yeah, they're playing uh, next July uh, all across England. Two dates in Lo- or three dates in London. They just added a third date in London. They're also going to be playing Birmingham, uh, Glasgow, and uh, Scotland or Glasgow. I I never know which one it is. Uh, and they're playing Manchester. Uh, at the O2 uh, Apollo. So uh, if you want to see The Damned, go see The Damned. Go see him next year because uh, we might even be at one of those fucking shows. Yes,
1: completely encapsulated in a bubble, though. <laughs> we'll do our best.
2: <laughs> coming back from Mont de Marsan, Ian Curtis had more of a burning desire than ever to get shit going. And he figured the dudes he talked to at the last Pistol show, Bernard and Peter, would be the ones to do it with. As far as how Ian Curtis actually joined what would become Joy Division there are conflicting stories, although none of them are quite as cinematic as we'd all like them to be. Instead, it was much more casual, proving that most of the time, music history was made by people just saying, hey, want to play?
1: Right. That's it. That's it. It was like... um Sure.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all
1: it is. As far as we know, Ian called up Bernard about the ad that they put up. Remember the one the yeah. singers wanted on, on, the, on the Virgin Records shop? Mm-hmm. And Ian didn't sound so crazy like the others. So Bernard said he practically offered him the job on the spot. <laughs> Once he remembered, he was like, oh, you're Ian with a hate jacket, right? You've been to all the punk shows that I've been going to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, why not? And they didn't even bother to audition him. But they did tell him to meet up with them uh, one Sunday afternoon. Like, you know, a kind of a getting to know ya kind mm-hmm. of thing. Well oh, they had a play date? Yes. <laughs> they literally had a play date. They spent the afternoon in the countryside of Ashford Valley, hanging out in the woods and jumping over streams and getting all muddy and being kids. And from then on, they figured, okay, you're our singer. And Terry, you're relieved of your singing duties. <laughs> What is Terry doing now? I thought I'd pick up the guitar. Oh, we'll see.
2: Yeah, Terry is, a, they, that is the story of Terry and Joy Division. It's a long string of wheel C's.
1: Uh, well, now he's going to try to be the second guitarist, even though they don't allow second guitarists except for rehearsals. But don't tell Terry that.
2: And so with Ian Curtis finally in the band, the boys started a mole, a name change. And that's where we'll pick back up. Ooh. For part two of Joy Division,
1: I know they're not even Joy Division yet. Yeah,
2: they're not even Joy. They're not even Warsaw yet.
1: I know. Oh, <laughs> spoiler! Well, spoiler. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. had to introduce like eight characters, including Manchester City itself.
3: Absolutely. So
1: it's it's just a lot of setting up, and then we're gonna knock them down.
2: Of course, we're gonna knock them down, and and that's but that's the uh, the amazing thing about this band is that it's two albums. They have two albums, and still. There's so much to talk about yeah. because it's a great fucking story. You know, they're just fun. They're, I mean, Peter Hook is surprisingly funny.
1: Yes, they all are. Yeah. Every single one of them are hilarious. Oh, we got to talk about our book sources. Of course. So I've read a lot of books.
3: <laughs> we got
1: Unknown Pleasures by Peter Hook chapter and verse by bernard sumner the life of ian curtis torn apart by mick middles and lindsey reed touching from a distance by debbie curtis this searing light the sun and everything else joy division the oral history by john savage joy division piece by piece writing about joy division 1977 to 2007 by paul morley so this is permanence lyrics and notebooks of ian curtis <laughs> edited by debbie curtis and john savage I swear I was there. Sex Pistols, Manchester, and the Gig That Changed the World by David Nolan. And 33 and a Third, Unknown Pleasures by Chris Ott.
2: You have read a lot.
1: A lot. <laughs> a lot of books. <laughs> I mean, they're they're all great. Yeah. They're all fantastic. Uh, obviously, the... The uh, autobiographies uh, uh, by Peter Hook and, and Bernard Sumner. Uh, a lot of it is very much uh, how they remember it, but we're going to take it as best we can. We're going to go with it.
2: Absolutely. And also, uh, the uh, documentary that's just called Joy Division that came out in 2007 is also uh, fucking fantastic. Yes. It's very, it's just, it's so fucking good. And again, surprisingly funny.
1: And 24 hour party people. That's a delight.
2: It, it is a, if you, I mean, and if you really want it like, not even close to how it happened, but,
1: <laughs> but watch it because it's still, really fun.
2: I mean, it's fucking, it's Andy Serkis playing Martin Hannett. It's fucking, it's fan, Steve it's, Coogan, yeah. It's so much fun. It's such, a, it's a very funny movie. Uh, and uh, if you want to be absolutely uh, fucking devastated, uh, Control, the biopic about Ian Curtis. Uh, whew. <sighs> okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh and I, c- I i gotta plug uh professional friends of course yes the other podcast i do with my buddies and it's just a fun chat show we do every single week and oh in gloss uh gorgeous ladies of streaming that i do every other sunday with uh, uh jackie Zabrowski and lexi robbins uh we're on twitch.tv slash holdernators Ho,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and or i like to call it holdernator show <laughs> without a w
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, if you, you want to see my face, yeah. you can do that.
2: Of course. It's a really fun show. Check Thanks. it out. And also, if you want your own uh, No Dogs in Space merch, uh, we got a sweet fucking t shirt for sale over at lastpodcastmerch.com. Uh, uh, and if you want to follow our Instagram to find out exactly when episodes come out and to just see uh, fun pictures from uh, all the heirs of punk, uh, follow us at No Dogs Pod and our band
3: yes our this band
2: this week we've got a band for you and of course if you are uh, are in a band you the listener if you the listener are in a band uh and you want to hear your music on no dogs in space then send us uh, a link to your band camp your spotify or even send us a track uh itself to no dogs in space at gmail.com and maybe we will play it here on the show just like we're playing prosthetic patient out of Colorado Springs Colorado man that's a hell of a town to live in <laughs> oh Colorado Springs uh, this song is called uh, leave with us uh, it's got some fun like Marshall Apple white samples in it. So, you know they, they knew how to play to their audience here <laughs> uh, but yeah they've got uh, they've got this released on their Bandcamp. camp prostheticpatient.bandcamp.com uh, go check them out uh, they're fucking great and we'll be back next week
1: next other week
2: next other week yes yes next other week I'm still getting used to that we'll be back in two weeks with Joy Division part two thanks everybody goodbye
3: goodbye
5: planet Earth about to be recycled your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us is to leave with us is to leave with us, is to leave with us, is to leave with us. is to leave with us.
0: most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprites ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last
2: The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives
3: you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit valottery.com.